So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you please turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, uh, this summer, I've been taking my kids to the park, and Eason, he's three years old now, and he started noticing kids playing sports, and one of the things that he's really been intrigued by is baseball. And I'm like, all right, that's, I love that. I'm gonna, he's my retirement plan. He's going to be good at some sport, <laughs> and he's going to support me in my old age. And so he's like, Dad, I want to play baseball with the kids. I said, all right, well, they're on a team, so what we can do is next year you can sign up to be on one of the teams, but before you can play baseball, you have to get the gear. You can't just show up. So we went out and we got him you know, a bat and a t-ball a set, like a little tee and the t-balls and everything. And my wife's like, where's the batting helmet? I'm like, it's t-ball. Nobody's throwing a ball at him. So watch, he's going to get hurt now and I'm never going to hear the end of it. But I got him all of these gifts. I gave him everything that he needs to be an elite baseball player someday. Right? He has all of the gear. But just having the gifts hasn't changed him. He has to respond to the gifts that I've given him and allow them to then change them as they're used inside of his life. And that's the same way with any gift that we receive. Every gift that we receive won't change us or bless us just in itself. It's something that requires a response to it. And this is true in the spiritual realm as well. Every gift that God has given you requires a response. And God has given us many gifts, and he's given us great gifts. The first one, if we just think about it, is the gift of salvation. That Jesus came, that God took on human flesh, Jesus is here, he humbles himself, he serves us, he goes to the cross, pays the price for our sins, now we receive new life, we stand in right standing with God the Father, uh, we have eternal life. This is an incredible gift, but it's something that we can't just receive, it requires a response. Not that we earn it, but we have to respond to this gift by saying, thank you, God, for this gift. I put my faith and my trust in you. And then once we make that response, the gift now begins to bless us and it begins to change us. But God hasn't just given us the gift of salvation. He also has given us the gift and the promise of a completely new way of life that we leave the old sinful nature behind and that we take on the very nature of Jesus himself. In 2 Peter 1, 3-4, which we went over last week, it said, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape from the corruption caused by human desires. See, God didn't just save you from your sin. He gave you a new nature. Now, why would God give you a new nature? Because your nature determines what your appetites are. And when Ann and I got married, we didn't have any kids, we didn't have any dogs, even a fish. So we thought if we want to live the true American dream, we have to get ourselves a dog. And so we got this black lab, and uh, you know, it was a lot of fun having him at first, but he had this really bad habit. We lived on 80 acres, and then like the next house next to us had 100 acres, so it's way out in the country. And we just let him out to run around and be a dog because we thought, you know, we'll just let him run around what dogs want to do so we won't keep him from doing that. And he would go out there, and every now and then, he would find some dead animal carcass. And he, she... <laughs> I remember that. It was more than once, unfortunately. But 
he, he would roll in it. And I don't know what makes you think, hey, here's a dead animal, let's roll in this. So he would roll around in it, and then he would proceed to eat this nasty, dead animal that he found. So he'd come in the house, and would always be when we had company over. So dog comes in, smelling terrible, jumping on people, getting animal goo on people. It was disgusting and embarrassing. We had to go out there and give him a bath, sometimes in the middle of the winter or whatever. And I'm like, that stupid dog, and you know, all mad. And then you go to bed at night, you think it's over, and then you hear, hmm, 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 and nothing wakes you up out of a dead sleep like here, like, hmm, hmm, and Anna's like, get out, Jeremy, the dog's gonna throw up, and so I'm like jumping up, it's pitch black in my room, I'm trying to find the black lab in my room, I'm just, I'm confused, I'm scared, and so finally you find him, and you grab him by the collar, and I'm running the dog towards the front door, and he's leaving a trail of vomit all the way, and by the time we get to the door, he's done. I'm like, you stupid, stupid animal. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'm going to go clean it up. So I go to the kitchen, I get some clean supplies. You walk back, and you're like, where'd it go? And you're like, oh, no, you did it. It's like, if, if, you th if what you ate was so bad that it caused you to throw up the first time, what makes you think the second time is going to go any better for you? Dogs are sitting there <laughs> smiling at you, wanting you to pet it. I'm like, oh my goodness, you stupid animal. But you know, no matter how hard you try to train a dog, you cannot train them to not roll and eat dead animals. Why is that? Because it's the nature of a dog. And the dog's nature determines its appetites, and your appetites then determine your actions because you have to fulfill the appetites that are caused by your nature. And here's the thing, is that we were once that dog. You know, we had an old nature. It says that we had a sinful nature. And it wasn't our fault. We were born with that nature. And so it didn't matter how hard we tried to train ourselves and to modify our behaviors. We had a nature that was producing appetites inside of us for things that were destructful, things that were damaging to us, things that led us to horrible pain and grief and suffering. And over and over again, we kept doing it. Paul talks about this. Like, there's the things that I don't want to do, things that I hate, and I keep finding myself doing these things. And the things that I want to do, I'm not able to do them. And that's why Jesus came, and he gave us a new nature, the very nature of himself. Because if he just saved us and said, you have eternal life that's waiting for you in heaven, see you there, we would be living in hell on earth because we would know the good things that we've been called to and continue to fail over and over again. We would continue to live a life with these terrible appetites inside of us that continuously lead us into ruin over and over again with no way of escaping it. So Jesus came and he says, not only am I going to forgive your sins, not only am I going to give you a new life, but I'm going to change your very nature. And by changing your nature, I'm going to change the appetites that you have inside of you. And by changing your appetites, now I'm going to change the things that you actually do. That's what Christ has done inside of us. And that's the beauty of what Jesus has done inside of us. We have a new nature, the very nature of Christ. 
And when you read your Bible and you're reading about the things that Jesus did and the way he lived his life, doesn't that stir something up inside of you? Like, I want my life to look like this. I want to have that intimate connection with the Father like we see Jesus demonstrating. I want to be able to have that kind of a prayer life. I want to be able to see God use me miraculously to build his kingdom and to lead people into his kingdom. I want to be like Jesus. And the good news is, is that we have that ability. Jesus isn't just this moral, prophetic character that we aspire to be like someday. He's not just the ideal human. He's the prototype of who it is that every single one of us is being made into. When we read scripture and we see what Jesus did, it's setting the example for what we can do too. Jesus is the holy possible for every single one of our lives because we have his nature inside of us, which means that now we have the same appetites that Jesus had, and it means that we also are going to do the same things that he did as we indulge in these good appetites that God has put inside of us. It says that God has poured out the Holy Spirit on us. The Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus and led Jesus to do all the things that he did has been given to us. So we have the nature of Christ, and we also have the same power that Jesus had inside of him. We can live the life of Jesus. That's what every single one of us has been called to. It's the holy possible for our lives. That's the great promise that God has made us. Not just salvation, which is incredible in itself, but a new way for us to live, a new nature by which we live our lives. But we must respond to these gifts. Just having the gift won't change you. The way you respond to the gift is what's going to change and to affect your life. And so Peter now writes to us about how we do that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. He says, In view of all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge of self-control, and self-control, and patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So dear brothers and sisters, Work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Peter begins this by saying, In light of the incredible promises that God has given to us, we need to respond to them that we should do everything we can to take hold of these promises. In the Greek, it actually means to diligently do this and with haste. It means that what God has offered us is so great that don't just sit around waiting for it. Like Get up, leave what you're doing, and embrace these promises that God has made to us. Sometimes we treat the promises of God like a gift card. Have you ever received a gift card? And you're like, hey, this is awesome. I get to go buy something somewhere. But the gift card in itself doesn't actually do you anything until you use it, Right? So here's what happens to gift cards. You get it, you're all excited about it, you put it in your wallet, and three years later, you remember that you have it. And there's been that $3 monthly fee taken out of your balance. When you go to use it, it's like, I owe you money somehow? Like, I thought this was a gift card, and now I owe you money because I waited so long to use it. We don't want the gifts that God has given us to become like that gift card inside of our lives. We need to go out there, and we need to use it immediately. That's how great these promises are. Don't you want to live like Jesus? Don't you want that nature? 
That's what I want more than anything in this world. And it's the promise that's been given to me, but now I have to actively respond to that gift. And the way that we respond to it is, first of all, with faith. It says, everything in your spiritual life begins with and is carried through and ends with faith. It's by faith that we have been saved. We responded to the promise of salvation by faith. It says that we can't even please God without faith. Because we live in a, you know, a corporate America world, we have this idea that if we want to please God, we need to have the certain giftings, these talents, and these skills, and then we will be able to live a life that's pleasing to God. But God doesn't say that to please me, you have to be talented, skilled, good-looking, all of these other things. He says that you have to have faith if you want to live a life that's pleasing to me. Because here's what happens. If you just rely upon the skills and the abilities that you have or wait until you have them to move into the thing that God's called you to or to respond to him, then you'll do it without having any trust in him. When God calls you to do something, you're never qualified to do it. When God gives you a vision and a dream, you don't have the means. You don't have the ability to carry through with it. You have to move into what God's called you to, knowing that if God doesn't show up and empower you and gift you, things are going to fail miserably really, really fast. But when you put your faith and your trust in God, then you can move into everything that he's called you to, and as you step out into what God's called you to, then he provides you with the gift. Then he provides you with the abilities, the connections, the resources, whatever it is that you need. Let me tell you, when we moved over here to start the church, we needed to raise about $150,000 to do that. We moved over here and we bought a house with $0 raised. That was a step of faith. And I tried to get money before I moved. I wanted to be smart, like, well, let me raise the funds, and then when it comes in, then we'll move. And God was like, no, you move first, you put your faith and trust in me, and then I'm going to provide you with everything that you need. And that's exactly what happened. When I got up here to preach my first sermon, I didn't know what I was doing. I told people I did because I wanted people to show up, but I lied. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I feel like you preach all the time. Oh, yeah, I've preached like three times. <laughs> But I just moved in faith and knew that as I responded in faith to what God had called me to, that he was going to show up and he was going to provide me with everything that I needed. As you move in faith, God will give you everything that you need. And that faith then moves you into moral excellence. See, moral excellence, that word moral means virtue. It's talking about godly virtue. And the word excellence in Greek means that something is fulfilling its purpose. So if you had a field and it produced a lot of crops, then you would say that that is an excellent field because it has fulfilled the purpose for which you are using it. And so what God is saying is that I want you to have my virtue in you. That is your purpose. And when you fulfill this purpose of carrying my virtue inside of you, then you are excellent. See, we read the Bible and we have prayer time with God and we have all kinds of revelations about the character of who God is. But most people don't read their Bibles. Most people don't spend time praying and worshiping God. And the only glimpse that they're ever going to get of who God is is the God that they see inside of us and the way that we model and that we demonstrate that. So moral excellence means that you are carrying the virtue of God inside of you, and you're doing it in a way which fulfills your purpose. So when other people see you, they see the virtue of God. And that virtue then leads into knowledge. You see, 
Knowledge means to continue to grow in something, to have a practical knowledge of how to use the things that you have learned. So if you just have an idea, okay, this is the virtue that God has called me to live out, but you don't have any way of making it practically played out inside of your life, it doesn't do you any good. My freshman year of college, my roommate was a psych major. And after spending four years and $100,000 pursuing his degree, he was working as a server at Applebee's. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a server at Applebee's, but you don't need to spend four years in college and $100,000 to be able to do that. I'm sure that when he went to pursue this degree, he wasn't thinking, I'm going to be able to explain the daily burger special to people someday now that I have attained this. Because even though he had gained knowledge, he didn't have a practical knowledge of how he would put this into use. It was just all head knowledge for him. We haven't been called just to gain head knowledge of the way that God operates and the way that he wants to move inside of our lives and for us to live our lives. We have to gain this understanding of the practical way that that plays out inside of our lives. And that's something that God gives to us. It's a result of the nature that God has given to us. And then that knowledge of how to do it, if you have a plan of, okay, this is what I need to do in order to, to live out God's will inside of my life, it's nothing if you don't have self-control. See, I know that if I want to be in good shape, I can't just eat Twinkies all day long. I know I need to eat greens. I know I need to exercise. That's the practical knowledge of how I live out a healthy lifestyle. But that also means that I have to be able to control my body and my desires so that I can actually live this out. And that's something that we struggle with a lot because we live in a very blessed culture. Uh, I mean, especially food. The reason I said Twinkies, even though they're disgusting, is because all of us, uh, we're all like, man, I wish that I could eat better. I wish I could do whatever. And that all comes down to an issue of self-control inside of our lives. And we have to be able to have the ability to govern our own actions. And this is what the Bible says about those with self-control. Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. And this is what it says about those who lack self-control. In Proverbs 25, 28, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So even if you aren't the best at what you do, if you have self-control, it says that you're going to be better than other people. Because you have the ability now to see out a plan laid in your life and followed. But if you lack self-control, it doesn't matter how much knowledge or moral excellence you have. It doesn't matter how skilled and how able you are. It says that it will lead you to ruin because you aren't able to control and to govern the own desires that you have inside of you. Now, Jesus has given us a new nature. But that doesn't mean that the old nature doesn't creep up. It doesn't mean that we don't remember anymore the things that we used to do and those still don't pull on our hearts at times. And if we go back and indulge in the things that we used to indulge in, if we go back to the spiritual Twinkies, then it's going to lead us to a place of ruin. We have to be able to control and to govern the desires that we have and choose which ones we indulge in. But then there's also perseverance. And perseverance is about the ability to have self-control for a long period of time. It means that you have self-control in the times when you're going through hardships, when you're going through great difficulty. I have a, a friend named Darren, and he ran 100 ultra marathons in 100 days. 
He spent two years training for this event. So the self-control came in for two years. He's having to get up and he's having to diet right. He's having to do his stretching. He's having to go out there and train to do this event. But then the endurance part of it, the perseverance part came when he started out at Santa Monica, Monica Pier on day one and knew that he had to run all the way to Times Square in New York City. It meant that when his fingernail or when his toenails blistered and fell off, he had to keep running. It meant that when the shin splints came and the pain was so great, he had to keep running day after day after day. And by doing this, he's able to raise over $140,000 for clean water in Africa. But let me tell you, that's where the endurance and that's where the perseverance came in because there were a million opportunities for him to quit. And the same is true for us in our spiritual life. Is that day in and day out, we have to keep getting up and keep saying, God, your vision for my life, the calling that you have on my life, that's what I'm going after through the daily grind. Because there's the mountaintop experience. There's like, oh, Jesus, you're so good, and it's so easy to follow after you and to deny myself. And there's the days where you wake up, and you're like, Jesus, I want to quit. I feel far from you. I don't see the fulfillment of the promises that you gave to me. I don't know if it's ever even going to happen. But that's where you have to endure. There will be hardships. There will be people that oppose you. There will be persecution that comes, resistance to what God's called you to do. But day after day, you have to keep getting up and you have to go in because you will never receive any of the things that God's called you to without enduring first. You don't find anybody in the Bible that God used greatly that didn't come against great opposition, that didn't have to endure and to persevere through the trials and the temptations. God has a great calling on every single one of our lives. What God's nature is going to produce in us is incredible, but it's only going to come as we daily take up our cross, we daily submit ourselves to Jesus, and daily are strengthened by him to continue to move on in our walk. And then this new nature is also going to produce godliness inside of us. And this word means a God-likeness. And really what it means is it's someone that worships well. And what I mean by that is this. When we worship God and we do it from the right heart and the right motive, it says that God inhabits the praises of his people. That we encounter God when we worship him. And you become more and more aware of his presence in your life, guiding you and directing you. So what happens is you become less and less concerned about the trivial affairs of your life because you see how much greater the things are that God has called you to. And as you continue to encounter God in worship, as you continue to be shaped by him, directed by him, you become more and more like God. So other people see you, and they see a God-likeness in your life. And that's what godliness is. We worship, we encounter God, he changes us, and we become an image of God to the people that are around us. And then because of that awareness in the shaping of God inside of our hearts, it says that brotherly kindness is produced inside of us. Now, for those of you that have siblings, you know that it's a special bond. You have an affection for your siblings. You have their back through thick and thin, but they also will drive you more insane than anybody else on this planet. Like little brothers and sisters, or older brothers and sisters, they're the worst. Everybody but the milder children, man. <laughs> It's hard, but even though you have these squabbles, even though they irritate you, you still have a bond and a love for them that is greater than all of the differences that you might have. 
And when God begins to work in your life and this nature begins to bear fruit inside of you, it says that we have a brotherly affection. You see, we're a part of a family. You didn't just get saved by yourself. You were saved into the family of God, which is every single person who has made Jesus their Lord and Savior. These are your new brothers and sisters. When Jesus' mom and brothers came and they wanted to see Jesus, and they're like, the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, your mom and brothers are here. And he's like, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Those who do the will of God. He's saying that we have a lot bigger family than we're even aware of. And that these people are going to drive us insane because they're going to be drastically different. They're going to wrong you and sin against you. You're going to have issues of pride against them. There are going to be conflicts and there's going to be tension. But what God will produce inside of you is a brotherly affection for all of your siblings in Christ Jesus. But not just that. You see, what this is all leading to is God's character, as God is continuing to shape our character through a transformed nature, is he's taking us to a place of where we have a love for everyone. See, our love isn't just extended to other Christians, but it goes out to all people. Jesus said that we're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to love those who persecute us. We're supposed to lay down our lives for those who would try to take our lives from us. And that's not something that is natural for us. That's not something that the old sinful nature will ever produce inside of us. That's something that's only the work of God inside of us. And this is what it says in John um, 4, 16, 1 John 4.16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And Peter says that if we have this new nature, this whole list of virtues that we went through, those are things that are going to be produced inside of us as we continue to allow God to change us into his image. And in fact, Peter says that if these things are being produced inside of your life, if this is the response in your heart to the work of God in you by giving you a new nature, it says that you will never fall away. But he says that if these things aren't being produced inside of your life, it says you're like someone who's blind. It says you're like someone who forgets that what God has done is cleansed your sins, that they've been washed away from you. And what he means is this. Now you can look at this and say, well, isn't this a list of things that we're supposed to do to get into heaven? And the answer is no, absolutely not. It's not that we do these things to get into heaven. That's what a legalist would do, and that's what, Jesus, or that's what John, uh, Peter is talking about, is that a legalist will look at this list of things that we have to do in order to make ourselves right with God. To say, okay, I have to have godliness. I have to have self-control. I have to have all of these other things. And what they do is instead of starting with faith and ending with a love for everyone else, they start with self-righteousness and they end with pride. See, Peter says that we have to prove that we really are those who have been called by God. And what that means is that the way that you live your life, what is being produced inside of you, will show everybody else around you whether God is in you or if he isn't. See, too many times what we do is uh, we, we go out and we see a tree, right? And you want to know what kind of tree it is? You look at what kind of fruit's on it. So if you go up and you see a tree and there's an apple on it, you're like, okay, this is an apple tree. But what did that tree do? It didn't think, okay, I'm going to produce an apple and that will make me an apple tree. It produced an apple because it is an apple tree. 
And that's the way it is with us. You see, there's going to be fruit that's born inside of our life. And it's either going to be fruit that leads to destruction and self-righteousness and pride and immorality and anger and greed and everything else. And that will come from the old sinful nature. Or there's going to be the fruit that we are just talking about, like godliness and self-control and perseverance and a love for everyone. And that comes because a new nature that you have inside of you produces those things. So we prove that we really have the nature of Christ inside of us because of the fruit that is born out of our lives. And so my question for you, and I think God is asking all of us this morning, is what kind of fruit is being born in your life? Have you been trying to to bear godly fruit and working really hard and thinking that once I can do these things that then I'm okay with God and I'm acceptable to God? But what you do is you keep struggling again and again. Instead of a love for everyone, you keep having a love for yourself and pride and envy and all of these other things. Or is the fruit that's coming out of your life reflective of the nature of Christ that God has given to you? And the other question too is, Do you want more of that? Because Jesus says that he makes us even more fruitful. He says that he'll come in and that he will trim the branches in our life. He will prune us so that we can produce even more fruit. So you guys stand with me this morning. Let's take a minute just to let God speak to our hearts. And let's think about that. God, you search our hearts. You know us better than anyone. And Father, this morning, would you speak to us about the nature that we have? Would you show us the fruit that's being born from our life so that we can know the nature that we've been living out of? that are bearing godly fruit would you show us if you're calling us to more would you show us these areas where you're calling us to new levels into new depth to produce even more of this inside of our lives and God would you reveal to us the thing that's hanging us up and that's keeping us from that that's you this morning, let's just take a moment to respond to God. Because all that you have to do to receive the new nature of Christ inside of you is to put your faith in Jesus. Just like you put your faith in him to receive the forgiveness of sins and to be saved, you have to respond in faith to this new nature to believe that it's what God has given you to believe that you have been set free from that old nature. It's a free gift that he's given to you that now you just respond to. So God, would you pour out into us your very nature? God, would you remove the old sinful nature from us that produced those appetites and desires that led us to ruin? And Father, would you instead fill us with the Holy Spirit? God, you said that we had a spirit-filled and a spirit-led life that had produced the fruit of the Spirit inside of us. So Jesus, would you pour that out? Would you rain that down on our hearts this morning, making us and shaping us into your likeness, bearing godly fruit in every season? And Father, would you show us the areas of our lives that are being inhibited 
God, where you've called us to more. And Father, we pray that you would remove and that you would reprune everything inside of our life that is keeping us from bearing more godly fruit. Because God, we want to know you more. We want to be useful for you in everything that we do. God, we never want to be blinded. We never want to be self-righteous. But we want to be those who, starting with faith, are led into a love for everyone because of your work inside of us. Jesus, come and do a mighty and a new work inside of us. And Father, would we encounter you every day every day being changed by you, every day hearing your voice speaking to us, every day confirming your love and your affection to us, and every day calling us to more, empowering us to the holy life that you've called us to. Jesus, that we truly would live the life of Jesus in our land, in our generation, that we would see you glorified and made famous so that we could see the hurting and the lost and the broken coming to you and receiving the life that you give, having their hearts mended, healing for the sick, hope for the hopeless. Jesus, would you come and do the things that only you can do through our lives as we continue to be submitted to your nature in us and allow you to bear your fruit through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.